Got a lot in my past. Got a lot on my mind. There's a lot of things I want back. There's a lot of me I don't like. But I come just as I am to you, and I know just what you're gonna do. Jeremiah chapter twenty-nine, verse eleven. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me because you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places that I've banished you, declares the Lord. And will bring you back to the place which I carried you into exile. So this is Jeremiah. He's the prophet, a prophet of Judah, one of the big prophets of the Old Testament. And he says that if we seek God with our whole heart, that God will deliver us from our captivity. The wholehearted pursuit of God is one of the main themes in the Bible. It's the foundation of the Old Testament Israelite and the New Testament Christian. When looking at the history of the Christian church, however, the principle of seeking God with the whole heart seems to get abandoned quickly. Periodically throughout the history of the church, movements have risen up and have endeavored to implement this, but within one or two generations, the believers have turned back to the world, and now we know why that is. We all know the verse in John 10.10, it says, The thief comes not but for to steal kill, and destroy. And we know that the thief here is Satan. One of the greatest things that Satan can steal from us is our wholehearted trust in God. Today we're going to talk about our wholeheartedness in our trust in God. Turn to Matthew chapter 23, Matthew 23. And this is uh, Jesus, Matthew twenty-two thirty-five. Matthew twenty-two thirty-five. It says, one of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with your heart and with your soul and with your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like to it, or like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the laws and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus is answering this expert, and he's answering him by quoting what we know as the Shema. Now, the Shema is an Old Testament. Uh, it's a Hebrew liturgical prayer. It's found in Hebrews chapter 6. And the Shema represents to Israel what is fundamental to the Jewish religion. Each Hebrew child, from the time he or she could speak, recited the Shema every day. Every day. The word Shema simply means to hear. But also implicit within this word is this idea of to obey and to take action. So the idea of being a doer and not a hearer only are implicit to this definition of Shema. All the laws and the prophets hang on these commandments. In other words, to obey God is to hear God, and to hear God is to obey God. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. 
Deuteronomy 6, and we're going to read the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and look in verse 3. It says, Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel. Remember, the word Shema means to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. John Shanehight in his REV translates that, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. Verse 5, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon or within your hearts. So this is the Shema. Unfortunately, while most of Israel had an intellectual knowing of the Shema, you know, most of them could recite it. For many, their hearts were left untouched. There was hearing, but there was not obeying. The fact was, throughout the Old Testament, in many instances, there was no wholehearted obedience. You don't have to turn there, but in Mark chapter 7, Jesus addresses this by saying, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, saying, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but the rules taught by men. He goes on to say that they aside the commands of God in order to observe their own traditions. So that's always the danger that we face. We face the danger of holding the Word of God within our hands, but not obeying the Word of God in our hearts, right? I've used the phrase in fellowship before that we hold the Word, but the Word doesn't hold us. And this is something that's extremely important for all believers to know and to heed. So when we read the Old Testament, uh, one rule of thumb that we should keep in mind when we're reading the book of Deuteronomy in particular is that Deuteronomy is the preparation of Israel to enter into the promised land, okay? They are standing right outside the promised land, and Moses is, is dictating this book of Deuteronomy, into, and it's to prepare Israel to walk into the promised land. We're going to look at several passages from Deuteronomy regarding this notion of wholeheartedness. This promised land represents for Israel all the hopes that of God's blessing and his freedom after 359 years of captivity and 40 years wandering in the, in the desert. This theme of wholeheartedness is carried on in the book of Joshua. Go to Joshua chapter 22. Now, just as a reminder, Joshua is the uh, commander who was designated by God to succeed Moses. So when Moses died, Joshua took over. And Joshua's mission was to bring Israel into the promised land. Of course, we know that Moses died before Israel entered the promised land. So Joshua chapter 22. And look in verse 5. It says, But be very careful to keep the commandments and the law of Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to obey his commands, and to hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart 
and with all your soul. So again, it's referencing the Shema. Now, as Christians, we know that we have a different program than the Old Testament law. We follow the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, as opposed to the law of Moses. Um, but we need to read the Old Testament and heed this teaching on wholehearted obedience. Too often the New Testament Christian falls into the trap of thinking that simply by knowing right doctrine, he has fulfilled God's expectations. And this is simply error. The fact is, when it comes to doctrine and wholehearted devotion, God would have us to know less and do more, obey more. It's obviously one thing for the soul to passively acquiesce to doctrine and quite another to apply the truth to practice, to give the, the word control over our lives and over our hearts, and to make a man like-minded with God, that he is pure even as God is pure. There have been men in all ages who have held faultless creeds and yet led godless lives. They tithe their mint and their anise and their cumin, but they neglect those weightier matters of the law. We want to bring sound doctrine in actual contact with men's souls to produce sound practice. As Reverend Tweedy said, all the heart is to be given to God. Until that be conceded, we have not observed the first and great commandment. The law of God is to be written on the heart, or in truth, we never obey it. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. So God doesn't want much. He just wants your whole heart. He wants all of it. That is his quest. Deuteronomy 10, and look in verse 11. It says, Go, the Lord said to me, and lead the people on their way, so that they may enter and possess the land, that's talking about the promised land, that I swore to their fathers to give them. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. How about that? So, Again, what I said earlier, that, that God is preparing Israel to enter the promised land. And what is he doing? He's concentrating on the heart, the preparation of the heart. And it says here, it is for our own good. And when we talk about wholeheartedness, what we mean by that is undivided loyalty, undivided trust. Now remember, God is one. There are no others. That's what we learn from the Shema and that we are to serve him with all our hearts and souls and minds. God is the searcher of hearts. He knows what wholeheartedness looks like. He required wholeheartedness of Israel, but unfortunately he didn't get this from that first generation that escaped Egypt. Uh, go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. You know, it's been said that it took Israel 40 hours to leave Egypt but it took 40 years for Egypt to leave Israel, if you can understand the meaning there. And after almost 400 years of captivity, 
Egypt had become part of Israel. As Reverend Tweedy said, the thunders of Sinai amid which the commandments were given had scarcely died away when the people who had heard them ceased to fear and quake. They set up a golden calf and worshipped it as their god, and that forms one of the most instructive facts in history. How about that? That immediately, I mean, when we talk about the term, the fear of the Lord, where does that term come from? It comes from that, that time on Sinai when Moses was up on Sinai receiving the commandments, and Israel was quaking in fear below. But as soon as the thunder ceased to be heard, they were down there worshiping their calf. And that's how we are. I'm always amazed at how one day I can be just completely in tune with God, completely in fellowship with God, and the next day, I'm not. I just, I'm just always amazed at that. Look in verse 3, it says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This was what Jesus was quoting when he was being tempted by the devil. In verse 4, it says, Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years, knowing then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. And this continues to be true for us today. Um, we heard it in manifestations that don't despise the chastisement, the chastening of the Lord. You don't have to turn there, but Hebrews 12 says, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure the chastening, the Lord deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof are all our partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. See, that's the truth of it, that God loves us, that we are his children. And part of the process of being a child and, and God uh, working within us to have this wholehearted devotion to him is that there are going to be times where the Lord is going to chastise us. And God does these things in preparation for our entering into our promised land, just as he did in the Old Testament, to purge our hearts from the idols that continue to lurk in them. God says, endure the chastening. They are for your good. Um, you don't have to turn there, but Second Corinthians in uh, chapter 10 says, the weapons of our fight are not weapons of this world. On the contrary, they are... They have divine power to demolish strongholds, and we've discussed strongholds in this fellowship. What's a stronghold? It's an idol in your heart. It's something in your heart that isn't supposed to be there, all right? It says, we demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And that's what God wants, right? He wants every thought obedient to Christ. These idols that I'm talking about within our hearts are fleshly arguments and pretensions 
that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. And God will go after these things in our hearts. And that's called the chastisement of God. Verse 6, it says, Observe the commands of the Lord our God, or your God, walking in his ways and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and pools of water, with springs flowing in the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees. That I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and your flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and you have, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of a hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble and to test you so that in the end, it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and my strength and the strength of my hands has produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your, your forefathers as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. Wow, what a great passage. What a great passage that is. So God's saying, he's saying, look, I'm preparing you. I'm getting you ready. Uh, there are going to be you know, seasons of chastisement to prepare you to enter into the promised land. But it will be good for you. So don't despise them. Bear with the chastisement. And when you do, you are going to enter this promised land. Now, once you've gone into this promised land, don't forget the Lord. Continue to recognize that it was the Lord who brought you to where you are. Don't ever allow those idols of of, uh, you know, seeking wealth or seeking acclaim or seeking, you know, notoriety to enter into your heart. It's the Lord who did this for you. It's the Lord who did this for you. Keep the Lord at the center of your heart. This is why when we talk about the chastenings of the Lord, they are so vitally important. And, and they often, if not always, indicate that the Lord is preparing you for something more substantial. If these chastenings are heated, you will move, you will be moving into a deeper, richer relationship with God. 
and to know more of his blessings. In the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, it's in, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8, where he sets forth the blessings and the curses of God, right? And I'll leave that to you to read. I'm not going to go through that today, but in Deuteronomy chapter 30, go to Deuteronomy chapter 30 and look in verse 1. It says, when all these blessings and curses that I have set before you come upon you and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything that I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he has scattered you. How about that? Isn't that something? Verse 4, even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate and persecute you. You will again obey the Lord and follow his commands I am giving you today. Then the Lord your God will make you most prosperous in all the work of your hands and in the fruit of your womb the young of your livestock, and the crops of your land. The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous, just as he delighted in your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God and keep his commands and decrees that are written in this book of the law, and to turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So you see these, these constant references to the Shema, Verse 11, now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that comforting? You know, when God says to us, look, I want you to obey all the word, you know, and and I, I'll qualify that by saying, you know, of course, we're talking about the law, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Sometimes it seems daunting, doesn't it? It seems like, how can I possibly do that? Well, you by your own capacity can't do that, but the Lord worketh within you both the will and to do of his good pleasure. If God wants us to obey him, he works within us to help us obey him. Let me read that over again, verse 11. Now, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us that we might obey it. Verse 13, nor is it beyond the sea that you may have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. And let me stop right there. Does anybody recognize this reference? If you look in uh, Romans chapter 10, Paul quotes this reference right before, I think, no, right after he gets finished talking about uh, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. The idea here is that God provides what you need and 
it's not beyond your reach or too difficult for you to acquire. Verse 14, no, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart that you may obey it. See, I have set before you life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call heaven and earth as witness against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. Isn't that just wonderful? Choose life. Choose life. That's why, you know, the Sunday devotional, you know, the Christian who is the Sunday devotion, uh, the one who shows up on Sunday for, you know, an hour to uh, check his box, that he made it to church and he's fulfilled his religious duty. That's not how it works. Now, that is a person who has a lot of idols in their hearts. God wants devotion and he wants devotion to him 24-7. He wants, us, he wants devotion to him, trust in him every waking moment. That's what God wants from us. And, and I'm pretty happy to know that. And I hope you are too. This has been the heart of God's people, to choose life, to choose to obey his word, to choose to endure his discipline, his chastening, since he loves you and he desires to bless you. And these blessings are only available to the wholehearted, the wholehearted. To finish today, I want to read something from A.W. Tozer. Um, he wrote this about Abraham and his relationship to Isaac. Uh, this is a little different from uh, what many, many of us have learned about, uh, you know, the event where Abraham is called upon to sacrifice his son. Um, but bear with it. I think you'll be blessed. Um, so just to go over a few facts here, God had promised Abraham a son by Sarah, okay? Sarah had all her life been unable to have children. She was barren. So uh, looking at the evidence by their senses, and in order to give God a little helping hand, Abraham and Sarah made an arrangement with Sarah's maid, Hagar, and Ishmael was born to Abraham. But God said, that's not what I had in mind. Rather, God had promised Abraham and Sarah, Abraham being 100 years old, Sarah being 90 years old, that these two people in their old age would have their own son. And I love the record. It's been, you know, over the past couple of months, it's been a real blessing for me that, you know, Sarah laughed at it, you know, when the angels showed up and told Abraham this promise, and Sarah's in the, in the tent fixing food, and she hears that she's going to have a child, and she laughed, and it was a laugh out of unbelief. And the angel said, why are you laughing? And she said, I didn't laugh. And he said, eh, you're lying. You did too laugh. And then it says, is there anything too hard for the Lord? And I love that. I love that. And when we look at Issues in life that are daunting, 
that are overwhelming. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? No, no, there isn't. All God required from Abraham and Sarah was their trust. The child was born and his name was Isaac. In that boy was the fulfillment of all that God had promised Abraham, that he would be the father of many nations. It was down through the lineage of Isaac. Now, in this story, we fast forward to Isaac uh, in his, there's a lot of variation on how old Isaac was at the time, but most agree that he was between 20 and 30 years old. So he was an adult. God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain. I will show you. Wow, that's amazing. So here was this this promised seed in Isaac, and all of a sudden God's telling him to sacrifice him. So this is a uh, this is A.W. Tozer, so just sit back and listen as I read this. I, I love this. This is just excellent. It goes, Abraham was old when Isaac was born, old enough indeed to have been his grandfather. And the child became at once the delight and idol of his heart. From that moment, when he first stooped to take that tiny form awkwardly in his arms, he was an eager love slave for his son, God went out of his way to comment on the strength of this affection. It is not hard to understand. The baby represented everything sacred to his father's heart, the promises of God, the covenants, the hopes of the years, and the long messianic dream. As he watched him grow from babyhood to young, adult, or young manhood, the heart of the old man was knit closer and closer to the life of his son till at last the relationship bordered upon perilous. It was then that God stepped in to save both father and son from the consequences of an uncleansed love. Take now thy son, said God to Abraham, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. The sacred writer spares us a close-up of the agony that night on the slopes near Beersheba when the aged man had it out with his God. But respectful imagination may view in awe the bent form and convulsive wrestling alone under the stars. Possibly not again until the greater, a greater of Abraham wrestled in the Garden of Gethsemane did such mortal pain visit a human soul. If only the man himself might have been allowed to die, that would have been easier a thousand times, for he was old now, and to die would have been no great ordeal for one who had walked so long with God. Besides, it would have been a last sweet pleasure to let his dimming vision rest on the figure of his stalwart son who would live to carry on the Abrahamic line and fulfill in him the promises of God made long before in Ur of the Chaldees. How should he slay the lad? Even if he could get the consent of his wounded and protesting heart, how could he reconcile the act with the promise, in Isaac shall thy seed be called? This was Abraham's trial by fire, and he did not fail in the crucible. While the stars still shone like sharp white points above the tent where the sleeping Isaac lay, 
and long before the gray dawn had begun to lighten in the east, the old saint had made up his mind. He would offer his son as God had directed him to do, and then trust God to raise him from the dead. This, says the writer of Hebrews, was the solution his aching heart found sometime in the dark night, and he rose early in the morning to carry out the plan. It was beautiful to see that while he erred as to God's method, he had correctly sensed the secret of God's great heart. And the solution accords well with the New Testament scripture, whosoever will lose for my sake shall find. God let the suffering old man go through with it up to the point where he knew there would be no retreat and then forbade him to lay a hand upon the boy. To the wandering, or to the wandering patriarch, he now says in effect, It's all right, Abraham. I never intended that you should actually slay the lad. I only wanted to remove him from the temple of your heart that I might reign unchallenged there. I wanted to correct the perversion that existed in your love. Now you may have the boy sound and well. Take him and go back to your tent. Now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Then heaven opened, and a voice was heard, saying, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heavens, and as the sand which is upon the seashores. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemy, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. The old man of God lifted his head to respond to the voice, and stood there on the mount, strong, strong and pure and grand. A man marked out by the Lord for special treatment, a friend and favorite of the Most High. Now he was a man wholly surrendered, a man utterly obedient, a man who possessed nothing. He had consecrated his all in the person of his dear son, and God had taken it from him. God could have begun out, of the, uh, out on the margins of Abraham's life and worked inward to the center. He chose, rather, to cut quickly to the heart and have it over with in one sharp act of separation. In dealing thus, he practiced an economy of means and time. It hurt cruelly, but it was effective. I have said that Abraham possessed nothing, yet was not this poor man rich? Everything he had owned before was his still to enjoy, sheep, camel, herds, and goods of every sort. He had also his wife and his friends, and best of all, he had his son Isaac safe by his side. He had everything, but he possessed nothing. There is the spiritual secret. There is the sweet theology of the heart, which can be learned only in the school of renunciation. The books on systematic theology overlook this, but the wise will understand. After that bitter and blessed experience, I think the words my and mine never had again the same meaning for Abraham. The sense of possession which they connote was gone from his heart. 
things had been cast out forever. They had now become external to the man. His inner heart was free from them. The world said, Abraham is rich. But the aged patriarch only smiled. He could not explain it to them, but he knew that he owned nothing, that his real treasures were inward and eternal. There can be no doubt that this possessive clinging to things is one of the most harmful habits in the life because it is so natural. It is rarely recognized for the evil that it is, but its outworkings are tragic. We are often hindered from giving up our treasures to the Lord out of fear for their safety. This is especially true when those treasures are loved relatives and friends. But we need to have no such fears. Our Lord came not to destroy, but to save. Everything is safe, which we commit to him, and nothing is really safe, which is not so committed. Our gifts and talents should also be turned over to him. They should be recognized for what they are, God's loan to us, and should never be considered in any sense our own. We have no more right to claim credit for special abilities than for blue eyes or strong muscles. Quote, for who maketh thee to differ from one another, and what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Unquote. The Christian who is alive enough to know himself even slightly will recognize the symptoms of this possession malady and will grieve to find them in his own heart. If the longing after God is strong enough within him, he will want to do something about the matter. Now, what should he do? First of all, he should put away all defenses and make no attempt to excuse himself either in his own eyes or before the Lord. Whoever defends himself will have himself for a defense, and he will have no other. But let him come defenseless before the Lord, and he will have for his defender no less than God himself. Let the inquiring Christian trample underfoot every slippery trick of his deceitful heart and insist upon frank and open relations with the Lord. Then he should remember that this is holy business. No careless or casual dealings will suffice. Let him come to God in full determination to be heard. Let him insist that God accept his all, that he take things out of his heart and himself reign there in power. It may be that he will need to become specific, to name things and people by their names one by one. If he will become drastic enough, he can shorten the time of his travail from years to minutes and enter the good land long before his slower brethren who coddle their feelings and insist upon caution in their dealings with God. Let us not forget that such a truth as this cannot be learned by rote as one would learn the facts of physical science. They must be experienced before we can really know them. We must, in our hearts, live through Abraham's harsh and bitter experiences if we would know the blessedness which follows them. The ancient curse will not go, on, go out painlessly. The tough old miser within us will not lie down and die, and die obedient to our command. He must be torn out of our hearts like a plant from the soil. He must be extracted in agony and blood like the tooth 
from the jaw. He must be expelled from our souls by violence as Christ expelled the money changers from the table or from the temple. And we shall need to steel ourselves against his piteous begging and to recognize it as springing out of self-pity, one of the most reprehensible sins of the human heart. If we would indeed know God in growing intimacy, we must go this way of renunciation. And if we are set upon the pursuit of God, he will sooner or later bring us to this test. Abraham's testing was, at the time, not known for him as su- or known to him as such. Yet if he had taken some course other than the one he did, the whole history of the Old Testament would have been different. God would have found his man, no doubt, but the, but the loss to Abraham would have been tragic beyond telling. So we will be brought one by one to the testing place, and we may never know where we are there or when we are there. At that testing place, there will be no dozen possible choices for us, just one and an alternative. But our whole future will be conditioned by the choice we make. Father, I want to know thee, but my coward heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding, and I do not try to hide from thee the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things that I have cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living self, so that thou mayest enter, avid dwell there without rival. Then shalt thou make the place of thy feet glorious. Then shall my heart have no need for the sun to shine in it, for thyself will be the light of it, and there shall be no light there, or no night there, I'm sorry. In Jesus' name, amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for that teaching. And Father, I thank you, Father, that it blesses each one of us. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that, that we can look to you in all things, Father, and that when we do meet those seasons of chastening, that, Father, that we embrace them. Thank you, Father, for these things in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. When I need grace. Push me away when all my bridges have been burned. You make another way when everyone is leaving. I can see that you're the one who sticks around. Everything I'm needing, I can see it. You're still the one who's reaching out when I need Ashamed of the things I've done You don't hold back You don't hold back Your love 
to write 